male and female. The world will divide us over education, all of the college graduates over here and everybody else on this side, or socioeconomic status, various things over which our world tries to divide us and often is successful in doing so. There are more trivial divisions like Texas and Oklahoma football, and I'll let you pick which side of that you're on. But the reality is, our world is so filled with division, if we're not careful, we can be conditioned to just accept that that's the way it is. Division isn't anything new. It's always been true. From Genesis 3 forward, our world has experienced at least some degree of division. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, that sin creates this barrier that separates God and man. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, and all of our spiritual ancestors followed after them, we likewise... Well, we'll start now. How's that? <laughs> Genesis 3 forward. Our world has been filled with sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says that sin separates God and humanity. And because of that separation, and we followed in the footsteps of our spiritual forefathers, Adam and Eve. And we likewise have gone in the way of transgression. You just keep reading in the Bible and you get to a place like 1 Kings chapter 12. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, does something foolish. And he divides the kingdom. And now there are ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, and God's people are divided. When Jesus dies on Calvary's cross in John 19 and verse 30, and he says, it is finished. Among all of the things that are finished, the reign of the old law, the reign of sin in the lives of humanity, one of the things that Jesus came to end is division. He said, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Jesus died so that all of humanity can be gathered together, one in him, and be unified. Before he died for the sins of humanity, this is what he prayed. Neither do I pray for these alone, only for the apostles, but for them also which will believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. In following the New Testament and being the people that God wants us to be in the book, if we would put it into practice, we have the answer to the world's problem of division. And we can have true and biblical unity that's not man-made or manufactured by humanity, but organized, designed, and implemented by God himself. I believe there's a book in our New Testament that helps us to answer this. And if you would, be turning to the book of Ephesians tonight. Adam led us in a song right before the lesson about the church's one foundation. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is where our lesson will come from. Verses that are very familiar to those of us that are members of the churches of Christ. And because of this idea, we're very familiar with Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And we know what Paul pleads for. And we often talk about the seven ones. And Paul discusses these at length. But it's important for us first to get an appreciation of why Paul is saying what he's saying in Ephesians 4, so then we'll see our responsibility. The book of Ephesians, like many of Paul's epistles, divides itself naturally, with the first three chapters of this book being heavy in theological truth, as Paul sort of packs those first three chapters full of all of the things that the Ephesians need to know about their standing and their status in Jesus, and then he works this out practically in chapters 4, 5, and 6. There's some overlap. There's some theological truth in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but it's heavy in his practical application. 
And there's practical truth in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but the first three chapters are heavy in their theological truth, things we need to appreciate before we can drink deeply from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. What I want to do is briefly just show you three of the things that Paul says in the beginning of this letter, and then we'll dive into the text of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. We need to do this. We need this this jumpstart, this setting of the context of the book of Ephesians, so that then we will greatly appreciate what Paul says, and we won't have him saying things that are not his point. Turn your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, after Paul introduces himself as an apostle, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he begins to enumerate all of those blessings in verse 4. According as he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We're predestined in verse 5, accepted in the beloved in verse 6. We have the redemption of his blood, the forgiveness of sins in verse 7. He's made himself known in wisdom and knowledge in verse 8. We've been made a heritage for God in verse 10. And then in verses 13 and 14, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's how Paul begins. Ephesians chapter 1, in summary, is about this one reality. You as a Christian have all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. Now notice Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It might be tempting to read the first chapter of Ephesians and be pretty arrogant, to be pretty proud about our standing in Jesus. But Paul destroys that possibility as he begins Ephesians 2 by reminding us of where we once stood. You has God made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sin, where in times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past. And the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were children of wrath, just like the rest. Paul says that's where you were. But look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 1, Paul says, we have all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. You have all spiritual blessings, not because you've deserved it or you've earned it. You remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in trespasses and in sin. You've been saved by grace through faith. All of the bragging rights about our standing in Jesus Christ belong to Jesus Christ. And now look at Ephesians chapter 3. This was always God's plan. In Ephesians 3, Paul says in verse 3, he made it known to me by revelation. And I wrote it down for you in a few words so that when you read, you might understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul says, God made it known to me and the other apostles and prophets, this great scheme of redemption. It's as if Paul is sort of pulling the curtain back and allowing us to look in on what God was always wanting to do. And that is to unite Jews and Gentiles in one body through the death of his son. Paul says, I've received it by revelation, but I've written it down. I've written it down so that you can read it. And when we read what Paul wrote, we'll know what Paul knew. Ephesians chapter one, you have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, those blessings have come by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done and our faith and trust that we put in him. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, listen, this has always been God's plan. He's revealed it. You and I are just grateful to partake in it. And now we're ready for Ephesians chapter 4. 
Because when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul is doing in summary is really on his knees begging us and saying, now listen, don't you mess it up. This has always been God's plan. You get to partake of it by grace through faith. And now I'm begging you, stick together. I'm begging you to work things out and to stand fast together and be united as God wants you to be. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, he says in verse one, I'm begging you, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling that is called you with all lowliness and with meekness and with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, even as you've been called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. What is Paul's recipe for true unity? Number one, Paul says, put your best foot forward. Look at verse one. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. It's the same terminology he uses in chapter three in verse one. Paul is saying, I've been taken captive by the Lord, though you may see me as a Roman prisoner. I'm not. I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I am where I am because of the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. I've surrendered everything to follow him. Now, as the prisoner of the Lord, I am urging you. I am begging you. It's impressive. Paul's an apostle. He could command, but he would rather beg. He would rather plead. I'm begging you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The first step to unity is as an individual, you put your best foot forward. You walk worthy of the calling that has called us. And what is that? What have we been called by? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul writes, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a play on words. Paul is saying, you've been called by the gospel. Now live in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This wouldn't be what we would expect right off. We would expect that if Paul was going to talk to Christians about how to have unity, he might lead off with doctrine, but that's yet to come. The Holy Spirit not only inspired the words of the Bible, he inspired the order in which those words were given. And it's impressive that in a section on unity, he begins with attitude and then works his way toward action. Yes, unity is about what we believe, but it's also by the way that we behave. Unity is both doctrinal and relational. And Paul says, before I know what you believe, before you get to any doctrinal convictions, walk worthy of the calling that has called you. Live like a Christian should is really what Paul's begging us to do. Isn't this Paul's practice? He'll lay down the theological truth. You've been purged. You've been forgiven. You've been saved. If you've then been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Colossians 3 and verse 1. The gospel is supposed to make a difference in the way that we live. And that's what Paul's pleading for. Grace as defined by the Bible. The goodness and kindness of God. Those that receive that grace are supposed to manifest thankfulness to show that we are grateful. It normally works itself out by responsible behavior. That's how we show God that we're thankful for what he's done for us. Not only by voicing our thanksgiving to him, but by also manifesting our gratitude and responsible and faithful behavior to him. And Paul says, walk worthy of the calling that has called you. Now, I know that we are all good Christians here and nobody sped to services tonight. But if you did, suppose you sped to services and on your way to Westside tonight, a police officer pulled you over. You were doing 50 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. And he says, now you're going 15 mile, miles per hour over the speed limit. You can't do that. And you said, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Officer. You know, I'm going to this gospel meeting. I'm a spiritual person. Would you give me another? He says, OK, we'll give you another chance. We'll give you another opportunity. What would happen? 
if the same officer caught you, the same driver, two blocks down the road, doing 50 miles per hour again, and you've got the same excuse. Paul says, now, you have all spiritual blessings in Christ. Don't forget it. It's come by grace through faith. You don't deserve it. You were dead in trespasses and in sin. Remember, your spiritual resume and mine is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We have nothing to recommend ourselves to God. This has always been God's plan. You're a participant. Now walk worthy of the calling that has called you. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12, he says, Walk worthy unto God who's called you into his kingdom and into his glory. Behave like a Christian should and please God. That's how unity begins. We might think of Christianity this way. My behavior is my business. My lifestyle is my business. But that's just not true. You and I are never going to have unity as God would want us to have it. If some of us are living for Jesus and others of us are not. And so we have to do it this way. Hold your hand in Ephesians and go over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 and notice verse 27. Paul does this again. He speaks about unity, but then he ties it to the way that Christians live their lives. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your manner of life or your conduct, your conversation, be that which is consistent with the gospel of Christ, that whether I come see you or else be absent, I might hear of your affairs, that you stand fast with one spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see that language of unity, standing fast with one spirit. How does that begin? How is that done? If your conduct and my conduct are in harmony with the will of God, let your conduct be synonymous with what you read in the New Testament. Live as a Christian should. A few years ago when I was heading to preaching school, I was in preaching school. I was heading to class one day and I was coming out of this Dunkin Donuts and there was a guy holding up a sign, honk for Jesus. And I was stopped at the red light and I just wanted to see what was going to happen. Because we live in a world where we're told that the rise of the religious nuns and people aren't as interested in Christianity as they once were. So I just rolled down my windows to see what would be the response. And to my surprise, there was honk after honk after honk for Jesus. People were bumping their horns in affirmation for the sign that they saw. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. But you and I know, we know that it takes more than just bumping the horn to actually fulfill what Paul wants us to do. To actually walk like people that are walking worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Now, some of you may be thinking they weren't honking for Jesus. They were honking because the light was green and Hiram, you were sitting still. (laughs) Maybe so, but don't kill the illustration. The point stands. Paul says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling that is called you. You know, when the apostles saw Jesus after the resurrection, it changed their lives. So much so that in Acts 4 and verse 13, they took knowledge of Peter and John that they had been with Jesus. I wonder if people look at us and they say, you know, those are the Jesus people. By the way they live, I've taken knowledge of them. They've spent some time with Jesus Christ. Paul's on his knees begging. I urge you, I implore you, walk worthy of the gospel call that you've been called by. Because that's how unity begins. Peter, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he tried to, he said, I'm not with them. I don't know the man three times. And they said, your speech betrays you. It gives you away. We can tell that you've been with him. We can tell that you're a Galilean by the way that you talk. And people can tell whether or not we're going to be unified and be the people of God by the way that we behave as well. Now, here's number two. We've got to put our best foot forward, but then there are specific behaviors that help us to stay together. Behaviors that unify us in verses two and three. Paul says, do it with all lowliness and with meekness and long suffering, forbearing one another or putting up with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 
Again, Paul says you've got to put your best foot forward, and that shows up by the way that you behave. There are certain heart dispositions. We talked about this some this week that we have to have if we're going to be the people of God with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Paul says that's what you need if you're going to be God's people. If you're going to be together, you need to stick together with lowliness and with meekness and humility and with long-suffering. Turn your Bible to Philippians again and notice chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and notice verses 3 through 5. Paul is doing this again and a lot of what he says in Ephesians. He says in Philippians, and we don't give these two epistles as much attention together as we should. We often talk about Ephesians and Colossians, but Philippians and Ephesians have many parallels. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he talks about Jesus emptying himself and giving himself over so that he might die for the sins of the world with all lowliness and with meekness and long suffering. That's the only way it's going to happen in God's kingdom, in God's church. In the first century, Paul's writing to people where the Jews are on this side and the Gentiles are on this side. And he's saying, you all have got to get together. And the only way you can do it when you come from these different backgrounds religiously And with your dietary restrictions for Jews and Gentiles is if you come to the table remembering the realities. You have all spiritual blessings in Christ. You're on the same team. None of you deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's always been God's plan to do it. And we just merely get to participate with him. The favorite passage that the Old Testament quotes from the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It talks about God's character. And when God reveals himself, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God. I'm gracious and merciful and long suffering, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Jesus says in Matthew 11 about himself, I'm meek and lowly in heart. Paul is saying in these verses in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, the behaviors that unify us is when we are Christ like individuals. Nobody thinks more of himself than he ought to think. Nobody's arrogant or puffed up against another. We realize that we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. That's where Paul begins. Are you lowly? Would you be described as a meek person? Would you be described as someone who endeavors to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? The book of Proverbs says only by pride comes contention. That means whenever there's a strife, whenever there's a butting of heads, whether it be in a family, in a corporation, in a business or in a congregation, either one or both of the parties has been exercising pride. Only by pride comes contention. But if we're lowly and if we're meek and if we're willing to suffer along or put up with one another and bear with each other in love, those things won't be our problem. Don Shula died a few years ago, but he was the famous coach of the Miami Dolphins. In 1972, they went undefeated. 17-0, and won the Super Bowl. No team has ever repeated that to date. The year they, after they won the Super Bowl, the year they won the Super Bowl, he took his wife after the game on vacation in Maine, and they walked into the movies. They went and saw a matinee movie together, and as he got into the movie theater, the people stood up and cheered. And he said, I don't want any special treatment. You don't have to cheer for me. He nudged his wife. He says, see, baby, they know me all the way in Maine, about which time a young man was going down to get popcorn or to use the bathroom, and he said, sir, would you tell my wife who I am? And the young man said, sir, we don't know you. They don't start these movies unless we have 10 people in here. We had eight. You and your wife were nine and 10. You put us over the top. That's the only reason why we stood up and cheered for you. And Mr. Shula told that story on the day he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. His point was, I needed a double dose of humility. 
with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. Listen, no one in the kingdom of God is going to ever stand up rightfully and cheer for you or for me. That is reserved only for the king, for Jesus Christ himself. And we should take our place rightfully as servants. With meekness, forbearing with one another. Peter thought that he was gracious on one occasion in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up till seven times. And Jesus says, no, up till 70 times seven. And we've gotten clever. We can do math now. We say 70 times seven. I can count to 490. You're on 475. But Jesus's point in that passage is not to make us mathematicians, but to make us long suffering toward one another. Because that's what it's going to take, putting up with one another in love. Notice Paul's language again, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavoring, it's the exact same word that's used in 2 Timothy 2.15. We're familiar with that passage. Study to what? Show yourself approved unto God. That word study, make every effort, be diligent or be in haste, hurry up, do everything you can. To make yourself a workman approved unto God, it's the same word in Ephesians chapter 4. And verse two and three, endeavor to keep the unity. That means give every effort, do everything you can to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That doesn't mean find the first thing over which you and I can divide and go our separate ways. Endeavor, give everything you can to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And you only divide after you've exhausted all measures. And maybe sometimes we're too hasty. You see, true unity says, I'm going to do everything I can to stick with you and you with me as long as we're in Christ. As long as you're willing to give it a go, I'm willing to give it a go. We can't compromise the doctrine. We'll get to that momentarily. But before we ever get to what we believe and what we practice, Paul says, you have to sit for a long time with these first three verses. Because if your heart's not right, you'll make a mess of verses four through six. Oh, we have to believe the right things. That's right. We couldn't be God's people otherwise. Jesus says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. John 17 and verse 17. But we also have to have the heart dispositions, which the Holy Spirit clearly outlines. Surely we've all known of churches where people would check off the exact same questions and answers on a doctrinal questionnaire. And yet they're divided. How does that happen? Because it's more than what you believe. It's more than what I believe. Convictions matter. Doctrine's important. But it doesn't stand alone. Paul says with all lowliness and with meekness and with long suffering, putting up with each other in love. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but in Christ, we're not going to always like each other. But we're going to have to put up with one, one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We don't have to make the unity. Sometimes I saw these when I lived in Florida. I haven't seen them in Texas, but someone might have this bumper sticker on the back of their car. And it says coexist with all of the various religious emblems, the crescent for Islam and the cross for Christianity. And what that bumper sticker is designed to communicate is you guys are all pretty much the same. And if you all just sort of get together and just sort of lay your differences aside, if you just coexist, you could have unity. Paul doesn't say we get to do that. He didn't say go out and make unity, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. It's already inherent in who God is. It's the plan that God had in purpose and in mind from the foundation of the world. Titus 1 and verse 2. You just endeavor to keep it. It's what Jude said in Jude verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which has been once for all delivered to the saints. You just hold fast to what God has already given. And you do it in the same manner in which he wants you to. Now here's number three. We've got to put our best foot forward. That's Ephesians 4 and verse 1. There's behavior that unifies us. But then in the third place, Paul says there are beliefs that unify 
Now, most of the religious world would say, Hiram, you could stop the sermon right here. We're pretty good. Love one another, be kind, be gentle, be humble. And that's pretty much about it. Some vague generalities about Jesus. Paul says you can't get away with that. There's one body and one spirit, even as you've been called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. If we get verses one through three right of Ephesians four and we blow it on Ephesians four, four through six, we might have something, but it's not biblical unity. We can't agree to disagree where God says we must be in harmony with one another. And so Paul gives us the famous seven ones. You could divide these up this way. There are three of these that deal with the unity of the Godhead and then four of them that relate specifically to humanity. Now, there's some overlap, but this just might be an easy way to help us get the point. And so let's do the ones that deal with the divine first. Maybe you underline these and then you'll go back and circle the ones that deal with the parts of us as humanity. The first one's in verse four. There is one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of God. Acts 2 and verse 38 says you receive the Holy Spirit as a gift when you're immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 5 and verse 32, God gives the Holy Spirit to all of them that obey him. If there's going to be unity among God's people, there has to be unity about the one spirit of God. Paul says there's only one spirit. Look at verse 5. There's one Lord. There's one Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, he's the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He dwells in inapproachable light, which no man can enter. He's the one boss in Christianity. There is one lawgiver, James 4 and verse 12. There's one Lord. You and I won't be on the same level playing field in biblical matters or in spirituality if you say, well, Jesus is just a prophet on the level with Muhammad or Abraham or somebody like that. There's one Lord. He's higher and holier than that. There's one Lord. Imagine being from Ephesus in your whole life. You've worshipped Diana, the goddess of Artemis, and all of these other pagan deities. And now Paul says, when you come into Jesus Christ, lay all of that aside. You remember Acts 19 and they burned the books. Many of the Ephesians did. Paul's saying, you have to hold fast to that. I'm begging you to do that. I know you work with people in the guilds in the Roman Empire that have different gods and worship all of the other pagan deities, but not you. There's one Lord. And then in verse 6, Paul channels his inner Judaism and he says, there's one God and Father of all. He'd be going back to the Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul echoes that in this passage and he says, there is one God, but not of the Jews only. But now that Jew and Gentile are in one body, he's the one God of the entire human race. It's always been that way, but now the Gentiles that are in Jesus can freely acknowledge it. And they have access to all of the same blessings that the Jews have. Because God wants people to be unified. But then Paul talks about our responsibility and the things over which you and I need to appreciate are one. And these deal with deity as well, but they are heavily involved with the human side of things. And notice verse four. There is one body. You might circle these, underline the ones that deal with deity, but now circle these. There is one body. That's what Paul says in verse four. And we won't have religious unity if you won't accept that, if you don't believe that to be the case. That's just what Paul says. This idea of the one body just runs throughout the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and notice verse 20. 
In Ephesians 1 and verse 20, Paul's point is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can work in our lives and does work in our lives. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, he says, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sat him at his own right hand far above all principality and power, might and dominion, every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Paul says the church is his body, but not only that, he mentions the church or the body of Christ in every chapter of this book. He's reconciled us to one body, Ephesians 2.16. The church is a part of the manifold wisdom of God in Ephesians 3 and verse 11. He's the savior of the body in Ephesians 5.23 and right here in Ephesians 4 and verse 4. In this passage where Paul is begging us to be unified, he says there is only one church. That's not Church of Christ doctrine. A group of restoration preachers didn't think this up in the 18 or 1900s. It's as old as your New Testament. That's always been the case. Now, maybe people that sometimes profess to believe that don't execute it properly, but that does nothing to strike at the truth of this claim. The New Testament just unapologetically says over and over again, there's only one group of saved people in all the universe. And everybody in the world is on heaven's most wanted list and has an opportunity to be a part of that family of God. But if you don't want to be, God's not going to come to your house for Thanksgiving because you and your family say, well, we're going to be this group and we're going to do this thing. There's only one body. It's always been. It's always it always will be. Paul could have made this easy. If God was okay with people being in different groups and different bodies throughout the New Testament era, when the Jews and Gentiles couldn't get along, Paul could have just said, "Okay, enough of this already. Jews, you go over here and you don't eat meat and Gentiles, you just start your group over here. Paul often argues for the fact that there is one body in the New Testament to drive home this point. There's nowhere else to go. So fix your issues with one another because God only has one family. And if you're in Christ, you're both going to be in that family and you just have to work it out. Paul says there's one body. But then again, look in verse 4 of Ephesians 4. He says there is one hope, and that's the hope of heaven. Everybody in the one body shares the one hope. Colossians 1 and verse 5, it's the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world ever began. There is one hope, and all of us are pressing toward that one hope together as we are in Jesus Christ. Quickly notice in verse 5, there is one faith. That is the New Testament system of religion, the convictions and beliefs, the New Testament system, the teaching that was given to the apostles and which they wrote down so that we might have it today. Sometimes the Bible speaks of faith and it's talking about your personal confidence in God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians five and verse seven. But in a passage like this one, what Paul means when he says there is one faith, he means there is one New Testament covenant. And all of us are saved as we have come into knowledge of it and obey what what his gospel teaches. And then finally, in verse five, there is one baptism. That's the baptism that puts you into Christ. It's the baptism that must take place for the forgiveness of sins. Acts two and verse thirty eight. It's the baptism from which one rises to walk in newness of life. It's not our doing. It's, in fact, called God's operation. In Colossians two, verses eleven through thirteen, Paul says there's only one baptism. One right way to be baptized, the right way for the forgiveness of sins. And then God places you in his kingdom, in that one body. And then you enjoy the one hope that God wants everybody in the world to have. And Paul says, there you have it. If we would just take Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, we could be unified. The whole world could be unified. If we remember where God has brought us from, 
that we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And we have earned none of those blessings. We have never put God in our debt with all of the obedience we could have mustered. It's by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And this has always been God's plan from the foundation of the world. And now Paul and the others are pulling the curtain back as God has revealed it to them and have written it down for us and preserved it up to the present hour so that we might know what he teaches. And now Paul says Christians everywhere, specifically in the first century in Ephesus, but to Christians tonight at Westside and throughout the world, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, live like you know this is the case. Now, if it's this easy, why aren't God's people always united? Why aren't we always together? That's the question that needs to plague us as we read these verses, because we can exegete this passage and explain it and quote it. But if we're honest, we know that sometimes we fall short of Paul's plea. And right in Ephesians chapter four, Paul gives us in the final place tonight the barriers to our unity. He doesn't just say, hey, here's how to be unified. But he gives us as he rounds out the chapter. These are some of the roadblocks to unity. These are some of the things that get in your way and don't allow it to be the case. Let's do these quickly and then we'll extend the invitation. In Ephesians 4, one of the barriers to our unity is our failure to use the gifts that God has given us properly. In verses 11 through 13, he talks about apostles and prophets and pastors that teach and evangelists. And he says in verses 12 through 13, they're given till we all come to the unity of the faith. These offices are designed to bring us to the unity. And while many of them have expired since the first century age has passed, some of them remain. The elders are the pastors that teach and the evangelists. And when those individuals don't equip the saints for ministry, we're never going to have what God wants us to have. But when the saints are equipped and they fail to do the ministry or they want the pastors that teach and the ministers to do the ministry for them, we won't come to the spiritual maturity that God desires. But not only that, false doctrine can corrupt the unity. In verse 14, he says, don't be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine just because it sounds nice, just because it sounds liberating or just because it sounds righteous and restrictive. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But verse 15, he gives the antidote. Speak the truth in love. He says another barrier will be if you act like other people in the world. Verses 17 through 20. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Because they don't know the truth, but you know better. You've learned better in Christ, Ephesians 4 and verse 20. And then in the final place, Paul says, the thing that will ruin the unity which God himself in Christ died to purchase is old people. They'll ruin the unity. Not old in age, but in attitude. Look at verse 22. Paul says, to put off the old... I saw some people about to stone me a moment ago. I know. I heard the prayer tonight. He said, I'm praying for all of the young people and then all of us older ones. So either a child or all of the older ones. But either, either way, that's not Paul's point in Ephesians 4. Paul's point in Ephesians 4 is this. The old people killed the church because they act the way they used to. He says, put off the old man, the former conversation. Be renewed in verse 23 in the spirit of your mind. The old man will say, well, you can lie about whatever you want in verse 25. But Paul says, you're new now and you know better. The old man says, listen, I get angry sometimes and I just lash out in anger. Verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. That's what the old man or woman does, but not now. The old person says, guess what? The devil, sometimes he just jumps. The devil makes me do things. Paul says in verse 27, don't give place to the devil. In verse 28, the old man thinks about himself. What can I take? What is mine? Paul says you work, but then you don't just work for yourself, but you work to share with those that have a need. And in verse 29 and 30, we don't upset God or grieve his spirit by speaking foolishly. 
but we share what God has given us. And he rounds it out in verse 32 by saying, you know how this all began. It began because you were forgiven. And so because of that, you be tenderhearted, kind to one another, forgiving one another. If anybody has an issue against any, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You see, in Ephesians chapter four, Paul says God wants you to be unified. God wants us to be on the same team. And we've got to do it God's way. Our mindset has to be I'm going to live like someone who has all spiritual blessings in Christ, who's been saved by grace through faith and who's a part of God's eternal scheme of redemption. And I'm going to walk worthy of the calling that's called me. And I'm not going to do it in an arrogant way where I think I'm better than with all lowliness and meekness and with long suffering, putting up with you as you put up with me in love. And I'm going to do everything that I can. We're going to do everything we can to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then we're going to hold fast to the doctrine that God has given us. We won't allow the old man or the old woman to spring up and disrupt the fellowship that we have in Christ. We're going to be the new people that Jesus died to purchase. Ephesians 4 is the world's only hope for unity. And we are the heavenly advertisement, or lack thereof, on whether or not it really works. The world searches in vain to get what heaven offers outside of heaven's design way of offering it to us. Paul says it's only found in Jesus Christ. Maybe tonight someone needs to put on the Lord Jesus. The one baptism that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4 and verse 5, we'd be happy to help you do it. If we could study with you, if you differ with us in religious conviction, We don't believe it's about who's right. We believe it's about what's right. We're not better than you. We've been saved by grace through faith. We haven't earned it. It's not because we're smarter or more righteous. We've been saved by grace through faith, and we want to extend the same to you. If you believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, let's study together tonight, and maybe we can help you come to the full knowledge of what Jesus would have you to do in his New Testament. Maybe you say, I haven't lived the way that I should, or I've done things that have disrupted the unity among God's people. If we can pray for you or pray with you, the elders will be down here to receive you. As Adam leads us in this song, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and sing.